Hi everyone, I'm Ricardo Gonsalves and welcome to this podcast of Small Business Secrets. Well, finding the right staff, it's one of the biggest issues for small businesses. So in this podcast, we'll tell you exactly how you can hire the right people for your business. We'll speak with Carolyn Creswell. She's the founder of Carmen's Fine Foods. And Sophia's Strings, this is an interesting business because what it does is create and make violins. There's actually not very many violin makers in the country. We've got all of that, plus Uber, how you can use that to supplement your income on this podcast of Small Business Secrets. Hope you enjoy it. Coming up, rapid recruitment, how one small business scaled up fast to grab an Olympic contract. Singing from the same song sheet, how to create harmony among small business staff and small business owner or employee, the debate over defining Uber drivers. I can work my own hours. I can work as much or as little as I want to. Hello, I'm Ricardo Gonsalves and welcome to Small Business Secrets. Also coming up on the program, we speak with the serial entrepreneur behind Carmen's Newsly. But first, did you know, staff are one of the biggest expenses for small businesses, despite it taking almost two years for most to hire their first employee. Small business owners spend between 7 and 25% of their time handling employee paperwork. And small business employment grew by 3.5% or nearly 150,000 people last year. Jewel Fine Food was on the brink of collapse when a proposal of Olympic proportions provided the opportunity to transform the business. Jewel grabbed it with both hands and took on the huge challenge of recruiting about 100 staff in 10 weeks. Camille Bianchi reports. In 1998, armed with a contract from major grocery store chains Safeway and Franklin's, the already successful New Zealand-based Jewel Fine Foods set off to expand in Australia. Unfortunately, supermarkets had some change of direction and uh, it didn't go in our favour. And we had to find another means and avenues to drive the business. They were on the brink of shutting down when they landed the contract of a lifetime. In 2000, we were fortunate to be a part of the Olympics. That was a life-changing experience for us, to be honest. But what appeared to be a lucky break brought with it a unique set of challenges. We had to produce a large amount of the wet dishes in a sh such a short span of time to cater in six to eight weeks' time and to be able to produce into the service around the clock. They needed to hire staff and quick, but they didn't have the funds to pay them. The banks or the other financial institutions were not as much supportive of trying to fund us at that stage. Undeterred, the business hired 100 more workers, most of whom agreed to wait for full wages. The only way to sort of incentivize was, was for me to offer them twice the amount for that period of time, so we could to support that, considering the nature and the size of the contract and which was uh, widely agreed by the majority of the staff. So we have a wonderful team. We treat them like family. 
We wouldn't have reached where we are today without them. We couldn't have done it by ourselves. Taking on that risk paid off for the company as big business followed the games with contracts from Qantas and Accor Hotels. Jewel Fine Foods came full circle in 2008, finally securing supermarkets. Woolworths, IGA, Coles and Costco now stock their ready meals. In the past year, Jewel Fine Foods has sold more than 15 million prepackaged meals, and that number is set to grow, with 16.5 million meals expected to hit the shelves in 2017. It sometimes surprises me and uh, to a degree shocked with how big the family has grown. And now 200 staff have joined the family to meet yearly double-digit growth. Our vision is the next five years, we want to see that in virtually in every household in Australia. Next up, health-conscious cuisine and kids' meals will hit the production line. Farming is a tough business, with the whims of weather playing a major role in success or failure. For one family in the New South Wales Riverina, drought and depression nearly spelled the end of their farming days. But they managed to bounce back, repositioning their brand and targeting a more niche market. Sana Kadar explains. Come on, up, come here. Up. <laughs> Never work with animals or children, isn't that what they say? Here she comes. Yeah, Lou. Come on. Whispering Pines Organics is the booming family business of Bettina and Robert Walker. Just starting to come out the head, they don't see. Yeah. But six years ago, it was a very different story. Emotionally and financially drained, after years of drought, they walked off the family farm. Mentally and physically, my husband and I had had enough. We both suffered from depression and we had put up with this now for like eight years. They uprooted to Sydney for a fresh start. But soon, another disaster would prompt their return. The attention of emergency services in New South Wales is tonight focused on two regions. Griffith is under threat, with more than 600 people forced to abandon their homes. The speed of the water is not an issue, but the sheer volume is. After 12 months, the flood went through the Riverina, and a friend of ours flew over our property in an aeroplane and took photos of how the devastation on this farm and we took one look at those photos and within two months we came home. Inspired by meetings with foodies in Sydney, they decided to restart the farm, this time with a twist. Met lots of people in Sydney that were in the food industry who kept saying to us, Let's, why aren't you evaluating? Well, Robert and I had no idea what the hell that word even meant. Run for a while, isn't it? Yeah. it meant they'd need to start milling their own wheat on site, providing a paddock to plate premium product. Four years ago, we started with, with this flour mill and this um, rolled oat machine. So then we went to this flour mill over here, yeah, which was our tiny, I mean, it's still small, um, but bigger than that one. And then we imported this one into the, into the country from Austria. And then came this. That'll do, more than enough. A two-storey mill that's given a major boost to production. When the Walkers started their business, they were milling about three tonnes of grain a year. Now they're up to 250 tonnes, and this year is the first time they've finally been profitable. One factor that's helped is selling online via the farmhouse website. 
giving their products national exposure. Farmhouse Direct for us has made our brand well known in Australia. I think the fact that it goes all over Australia, including Tasmania, has also helped. But farmers' markets are where they really get to know their customer. And KPMG Enterprise says that's where smaller businesses have an advantage over bigger ones. Small businesses are inherently agile and often are closer to their customers, which makes it easier and quicker to respond to changes uh, in the environment. Now the biggest challenge is trying to grow the business without proper access to the internet. It's satellite internet and it's so slow. We get 30 gigs a month. Um, that is gone within um, a week or so. Yeah, this is 270 kVA, which is big enough to sort of run a small town. In February this year, we applied for the NBN. They just tell you, oh, we're going to be out here to connect it. No one ever shows up. We can't grow like with our website and stuff like that because we can't get access to a decent internet. After facing drought and floods though, the walkers say there's no challenge they can't meet. I don't care, it doesn't matter what life throws of us now, we're survivors. Carolyn Creswell became a small business owner at 18. Threatened with redundancy from the small muesli maker where she was working, she teamed up with a colleague and bought it. It was this tenacity that helped her create the hugely successful Carmen's Fine Foods. And Sarah Arbo caught up with Carolyn Creswell in Melbourne. My parents worked hard for my education, but they never gave me any pocket money, so I had every part-time job you could ever imagine. And one of them was working behind the checkout at Coles, and one of them ended up being making muesli one day a week. So the people that I made the muesli for told me that um, I was about to lose my job. And so I thought, oh, well, I already make it, couldn't I buy this tiny little business? So for $1,000, I bought um, half of that little business. So that's where the name Carmen's comes from, the first three letters of my name and the first three letters of my partner's name and, and um, yeah, it's almost 25 years now. <laughs> so that's where you learnt more about the product, like you actually learnt the foundations yes. of the product itself. I know, and I always had to people, you know, these hands made the product for many years and I packed it and I delivered it and, you know, for probably the first 10 years I was sort of the only employee. So, um, you know, it's certainly no overnight success story, I can tell you that. <laughs> but how did you make it successful? I mean, you said you bought it out for, I think each of you put in a thousand, is that right? Yes. So you, you, you both bought it out because it was struggling. How did you manage to turn it around? Oh, well, let me tell you, if I could have got rid of it in the first few years, I would have, but I, I sort of owed money and, you know, it was really hard. So it was just trying to tr get some more accounts and trying to, you know, build the business up a bit. And yeah, it took years to, you know, eventually get into the supermarkets and, and you know, and for it to get some traction. And what was it like when you were struggling? I mean, what, was it, what were the struggles that you were having? Was it just not oh, getting out there? Or? I mean, the biggest issue was money, really. I mean, I used to get my brother to siphon petrol out of my mum's car when she wasn't looking so that I could have enough petrol to do the deliveries the next day. And, you know, I was always trying to think, how am I going to pay the bills tomorrow? Rushing to the bank in those days. It was, you know, depositing the cheques every afternoon. And, you know, and that was just the hardest bit, you know, and eventually when, you know, I still have framed on the wall here the first cheque of $1,097 I got from a supermarket, which was like big time of thinking, wow, you know, we've made it. How does one with an arts degree, gra yes. a graduate, how, how do you run a business? How do you even learn where to begin? I think, you know, some people are embarrassed about silly questions and I just think if I don't know something, I'll just go and ask someone who does and say, could you teach me how to 
read a profit and loss report or I'm not sure about um, you know an online push what do you know about that and so I just am always trying to learn. What part of your business is focused on marketing do you have a, I mean it doesn't seem like you've got massive advertising or anything no, like that. No I mean I think the thing is that if people see you know a billboard or something you know it might get their attention to try something but that won't make them buy it week in week out so we put a lot more effort into the recipes and designing the product than we do in any form of advertising first um, country that you sort of started expanding to? So the first one was Malaysia and I remember them asking me all these questions about oh you know are you going to sell send an FCL or LCL and I had no idea and I'd say oh look I'll just get back to you on that one not knowing anything about export and that's been about 10 years now and so now yeah we um we have quite a big business into Asia and we're doing a really big push into China at the moment. Yeah, tell me, can you tell me a bit about yeah, those sure. Chinese plants? Um, so in China, Australian food is just so highly regarded. And so there's a really um, a big push for our clean and green sort of ingredients. So we're really trying to establish ourselves. We've just so excitedly got accepted by one of the very best Chinese distributors. So we're really excited. We think it potentially could be as big as our Australian business in the next few years. So fingers crossed. And you've still got a, like a relatively small team, yes. I guess. Tell me a bit about the staff numbers and what kind yeah. of help you get when you go into those export markets, etc. Yeah, so we have um, 25 people um, at our head office and I have to say that they are the most passionate, hardworking, incredible people who make me look great because they, <laughs> they do all the hard work. And um, yeah, so really, um, you know, I, I guess that the real strength of Carmen's is through our product team of, of saying, you know, that the end of the day if we have great products everything else will work well so from you know it makes exports job much easier if the products are great it makes sales jobs much easier if they've got products um, great products so we've been sort of leading um, the growth in our categories in the supermarkets for quite a few years now in fact we've been double digit growth for 24 years now so we've never missed a year which is to me pretty amazing because as yeah. the business gets bigger you think wow you know to still be able to to not miss a beat um, so that's something that I'm really proud of. <laughs> the most exciting is if I see someone with it in their trolley and I always go up and I go oh my gosh that's my business so <laughs> nice to meet you and you know for me to think that there's like real people who are handing their hard-earned money over to buy it is the greatest thrill of the whole of the whole journey for me. Yeah really exciting and I, I still love it I love waking up on a Monday and coming to work and I think if that's how you feel about what you do, it doesn't feel like you go to work. You know, this is a privilege for me to, to have this business and to work here. And, and I feel honoured in Australia that you can have, you can go from working on the checkout to end up having a business that provides products that go through the checkout. And we, we're lucky to live in a country where this is possible. You know, in plenty of places this just couldn't happen. So I, I live with a very grateful heart that this has been my journey. <laughs> The making of stringed instruments is a centuries-old craft that's still alive, not just in Europe, but right here in Australia. It's a small and tight-knit industry though, and a maker's reputation is key. So, how does an outsider break in? Sana Kadar met with one violin maker from Orange in New South Wales, who's managed to do just that. Music has long been a passion for Peter Reed, but it wasn't always his vocation. Originally my first trade was electrical actually, so that and violin making are widely different. In 1988 I was working in a house at Mount Victoria, which happened to be owned by an old Czech fellow who was a violin maker back in Europe prior to the Second World War. 
I was playing some Mozart at the time and he came out and said, oh, you Australians don't like this music. I can still remember him saying that, it's very clear. And I said, well, this one does. And then he was delighted with that answer and from then he just started telling me things and teaching me. Peter learned from his mentor, Denny, over the next four years. He eventually moved and they lost touch, but the skills Denny shared stayed with him. For the next few years, Peter repaired instruments on the side, but finally decided in 2006 to start building them in earnest. The business got its name with the birth of our first granddaughter, <laughs> Sophia. We thought, how would we tie in Sophia's name to the business? And my wife Frankie said, well, Sophia and strings. That's what we do, Sophia strings. I thought, perfect. And from there I decided, well, this is really what I wanted to be. And I thought, if I don't do this as a maker, I'm really never going to develop as a repairer. But he found himself out of tune with the industry. It is a very traditionally based industry. Players were taught by someone who was taught by someone who was taught by someone. Well, the same thing with makers. The pedigree of the maker is very important. And Peter's teacher was virtually unknown in Australia. So that was a bit of a struggle, overcoming that, because oh, I've never heard of him. Well, okay, well, it, it's very real, and this is the end result of that reality. When early on, how did you first go about getting clients? I guess the first thing I did, the very first thing I did, I contacted local people that I already knew, music teachers, things like that. They then said, you should go and speak too. So the, the regional conservatoriums were probably the next step from that process. By 2009, he'd hit the right note and finally broke even. Probably within the last two or three years, we've gained a very serious profile. There are less than 100 private builders of string instruments across Australia, or luthiers as they're technically called. For Peter's business, about half is focused on instrument repairs and the other half on actually constructing instruments. And this past year has been particularly busy. Well, this year we've made eight instruments, but we've sold 10, so it's been a great year. With everything made by hand, it can take Peter anywhere from one month to six to construct a single instrument. Prices range from 8,000 for a basic violin up to 30,000 for the most expensive double bass. I find it easier to make them than play them. His customers include performers, conservatories, and of course, music students like his granddaughter and the business's namesake, Sophia. A decade of fine tuning and Peter's business is humming along nicely. And he still gets a tremendous lift from hearing his pieces played, whether it's by a novice or a professional. And you look at an orchestra and say, well, that's one of mine, that's one of mine, that's one of mine. So that's, that's pretty good. It's not easy to get small business staff all playing the same note. So, these cool cats at the Australian Institute of Music are here to help us help you get everyone in tune. First, recruit right. Make sure you employ people 
who are in tune with your vision and not create discord. Remember that might not mean hiring the candidate most like you. Second, identify staff strengths and play to them. Consider which members have the most brass and who'll best harmonise with them. It's important not to let a single manager or staff member become a solo performer. It can lead to exhaustion and resentment. And remember to think carefully about who you trust to conduct your team. Finally, as the boss, you need to be a solid sounding board. Listen to your staff and their suggestions. They probably know better how to run things more efficiently. Get the balance right and it will be music to your ears. The definition of an Uber driver could be about to change with a submission before the Federal Court calling for them to be considered employees rather than contractors. Now Uber has long maintained its workforce is made up of independent drivers akin to small business owners which means they're not entitled to the protections of employees like minimum wage and superannuation. It's something to consider if you're thinking of driving for yourself as Camille Bianchi explains. You may have caught an Uber but have you driven one? If not, signing up is likely simpler than you think. To go online, type Uber driver in, into Google and you'll be able to sign up. You'll be asked to load up some information, including driver's license, rego and insurance. You'll need a license, smartphone and ABN. Cars must be under 10 years old, drivers must be over 21 and pass police and health checks. No car, no problem give them short-term access to vehicles so that they can work flexibly but also give them to them at the right price. In partnership with Uber, Drive My Car Hires start at $250 a day to drive a maximum 150 k's. There's an e-signed rental agreement, we take the payments by credit card and they can be in the car within 48 hours. Ride-sharing rules have changed too. It's now legal along the eastern seaboard and in South Australia. Ubers in Tasmania and WA can pick up fares next year but it's still illegal in the Northern Territory. For details on each state, head online or contact Uber. But over half of our driver partners actually drive less than 10 hours a week. They're driving on Uber between their other commitments. But if it is more of a hobby, don't bank on a profit. Uber gets a 20% kickback on fares and drivers cover running costs and tax. 
Last year, there were more than 12,500 Uber drivers across the country, collectively earning a quarter of a billion dollars. That number has more than tripled, and there are now 40,000 Aussies making an income as Uber drivers. And half of them are referred by other users. Uh, there we go. If you've got an ordinary job and you're not an executive, I think it's great money. You can earn anywhere between $25 and $50 or $60 sometimes. The app funds Phil's outdoor training business. He's driving after hours for steady cash and capital in the venture's startup phase. The immediacy of the money is great because sometimes when you're running businesses, as you may know, invoices don't get paid or they're also inconsistent. The strategy really is, is to be nice and to be full of fun and relax and enjoy the people in your car. Out of the workforce and new to the country, for Janice, Uber offers much more than an income. What's your star rating at the moment? 4.9. 4.9. Yeah, that means some, somebody gave me a four. <laughs> Probably ate my chocolate and then gave me a four. <laughs> I was feeling very kind of stuck on the couch watching TV and knitting, knitting squares, <laughs> blanket squares, which is about all I'm capable of doing. And um, so then I thought, you know, I can do it. I've met like real Australians and it's just lovely. And 3,000 rides later, I haven't had a bad person in my car. And she has a tip to ensure passengers feel the same. Would you like a cough drop? And that is it for the program. If you do have any questions about your small business, why not ask KPMG Enterprise? We have their expertise on hand to help. The details are on our website. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can watch the show anytime on SBS On Demand. I'm Ricardo Gonsalves. I'll see you next time. And that is all we have time for in this podcast of Small Business Secrets. Don't forget, though, you can find us on both Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Biz Secrets SBS or Small Business Secrets. And don't forget, there is more on our website, sbs.com.au forward slash news. You can find us there. I'm Ricardo Gonsalves. I'll speak to you.